There's a scene in the movie Pat Garrett and Billy the Kid where Pat, before officially becoming sheriff, pays Billy a visit at Fort Sumner. The two sit down in the cantina as Garrett attempts to talk the kid into leaving the territory. You know how the conversation goes. Pat tells the kid that the electorate wants him gone, prompting Bonnie to reply, Well, are they telling me or are they asking me? To which Pat says, I'm asking you. Ah, such a great movie. Garrett gives the kids some like five days to clear out, and their exchange ends with the two bidding each other adios, along with Billy warning Pat not to press his luck. How accurate was this meeting? Did Garrett really give Billy a chance to scan out? According to John P. Meadows, yes, he did. Now, Meadows knew both Garrett and the kid, and when Billy busted out of that jail in Lincoln, he laid low at Meadows' place for at least one night while on his way back to Fort Sumner. John lived all the way till 1936, gave many an interview later in life, and he helped to write a book titled, Billy the Kid as I Knew Him. And according to Meadows, quote, Garrett himself told me time and time again that when he was elected sheriff of Lincoln County, his first object was to put an end to the kid's continued defiance of the law without any bloodshed. He said, I had figured out just how to do it. Before I was elected sheriff, I saw the kid and talked it over with him. We had a game of poker together, and while we were playing, I told him the best thing he could do was to get up and be gone for three or four years. Then he could come back and there would be nothing said or done about what had happened during the Lincoln County War. But the kid could not see the point of my advice and decided to stay. End quote. So was John Meadows telling the truth? Eh, it's hard to say. While he certainly did know both men, it's very hard to corroborate many of his statements. This one included... In fact, Meadows is a source that historian Robert Utley only used with what he referred to as a nagging hesitation. I don't know if Pat and Billy had a come-to-Jesus moment or not, but it is fun to think about. It also made for one hell of a good opening scene between James Colbert and Chris Christopherson. My name's Josh, and you're listening to the Wild West Extravaganza! Not only was Pat now the sheriff, but he was also given a deputy U.S. Marshal commission, allowing him to pursue the kid outside of the county, in places like Fort Sumner or even across the border into Texas. And it wasn't long before this job took on a renewed sense of urgency. Just a few weeks after the sheriff's election, Billy and them others got into that fight up there at White Oaks, resulting in the death of Jimmy Carlisle, an action that would be a tipping point as far as the kid's reputation was concerned. I spoke more about this in the series on Billy the Kid, but Carlisle was very well-liked. And although it remains unclear as to who was truly responsible for his untimely demise, Billy would take the blame. As such, many who supported the kid during the Lincoln County War now began having a change of heart, thinking that maybe Bonnie was indeed the bad man that the papers were making him out to be. By the way, if this is your first time listening to the Wild West Extravaganza... As I alluded to just a moment ago, there is a five-part series available on Billy the Kid. Link in the show notes. So if it seems like I'm glossing over certain events, these are topics that were previously covered. I just didn't really see the need to repeat everything on this episode. Speaking of which, what you're now listening to is the second installment in the series on Pat Garrett. I will also put a link in the show notes for the previous episode where we discuss Pat's early life, his time as a buffalo hunter, his friendship with Billy the Kid, and the events leading up to him taking on the job of sheriff. By this point in our timeline, the fall of 1880, Billy had already struck that deal with Governor Lou Wallace that never came to fruition, 
the Lincoln County War, the kid testifying in court against Dolan and Colonel Dudley, the breakup of the regulators, all of that has already took place prior to Garrett being elected sheriff. And it would be just about a month and a half after the election when Wallace would place that $500 bounty on the kid's head. Hope I'm setting the scene properly. Pat Garrett was just elected the new sheriff of Lincoln County, and he had the backing of not only the area's most prominent businessmen and large ranchers over there in Texas, but the federal government as well. Billy the Kid and his friends had just taken part in the killing of Jimmy Carlisle and are being hunted on three fronts. Not only by his old associate Pat Garrett, but Frank Stewart and the Texas Cattlemen's Association. And that Secret Service agent, Azaria Wild. And that is my long-winded damn way of saying that the heat was on. On November 20th, 1880, Garrett, along with his buddy Barney Mason, met with Agent Wilde to discuss their plan for raiding Fort Sumner. Now, Barney Mason I have briefly touched on in the past, but I think he's worth taking a closer look at. Born in Virginia sometime in the early 1850s, Mason spent time in Texas before migrating to New Mexico and working for Pete Maxwell. He even killed a man over in Fort Sumner in late 1879. The bizarre gunfight began when a drifter opened up fire on Mason for seemingly no reason at all. The unarmed Barney initially fled, but came back healed and plugged the drifter twice in the chest. Barney knew Billy the Kid and all his friends, and at one point he got along pretty good with him. Hell gang member Billy Wilson even lived with Barney for a while. But when it came down to the nut cutting, for whatever reason, Mason turned on the Fort Smith Desperados and went to work for Garrett. I say for whatever reason, but it does appear that Barney and Pat were pretty tight. When Garrett and Apollinaria got hitched up in Anton Chico, it was a double ceremony, with Mason and his bride tying the knot as well. Also, it looks like Barney was deathly afraid of Billy the Kid. Like I said, he was a kind of sort of hanger honor of the boys there at Fort Sumner, but he also was maybe not as much of a tough little ass kicker as he liked to pretend. Somewhere along the line, he and the kid got crossways even before Barney went to work for Garrett, and Paulita Maxwell shared a pretty funny story concerning the two. She would say, quote, Barney Mason, Pat Garrett's brother-in-law, lived in Fort Sumner for many years and wanted people to think that he was much braver than he was. But despite his boastfulness and his pose as a bad man, Fort Sumner always took his courage with a few grains of salt. When Billy the Kid and his followers were at the height of their success, Barney pretended to be a great friend of theirs. He gave them information, warned them of danger, and could not do enough for them. But when Pat Garrett was made sheriff and the forces of law began to close in on the kid, Barney had a change of heart. He accepted a deputyship under his brother-in-law and became as great an enemy of the kid as he formerly had been a friend. This embittered the kid and he sent word to Barney that he was going to kill him on sight. Secretly, the kid's threat scared Barney half to death, but he put up a brave show. The kid can't scare me, he boasted. I'll teach him a thing or two if we ever meet. But every time the kid rode in, Barney rode out. He never got within a mile of the kid if he could help it. One day when Barney was driving to town from Santa Rosa with his wife beside him on a wagon seat, he saw the kid coming toward him on horseback along the road. The situation looked ticklish for Barney. The country was open range and not a tree or rock to hide behind, and a desperado who had sworn to kill him about to pass within a few feet and face to face. In this crisis, Barney did some quick thinking. While the kid was still far off, Barney jerked the black mantilla off his wife and draped it about his own shoulders, and clapped her sunbonnet on his own head. Then he snuggled down into the seat, made himself look as small as possible, and clucked up his horses into a brisk trot. With his face concealed beneath the sunbonnet, he drove past the kid and was greatly relieved when he arrived at Fort Sumner to find himself still alive. 
Then he went strutting about town, telling how he had met the kid on the road and had opened up fire on him and the kid had taken to his heels and had been lucky to escape behind a hill. I told you what I'd do to that feller if we ever met, boasted Barney. And along toward evening, the kid came jogging into Fort Sumner. And as usual, the panic-stricken Barney got on his horse and ran away and hid himself in the hills. Everybody, of course, wanted to hear from the kid all about his narrow escape from death at Barney Mason's hands. When the kid heard the story Barney had been telling, he bent double with laughter. I recognized him the moment I saw him. His mantilla and sunbonnet didn't fool me. I would have killed him if his wife hadn't been with him. I didn't want to drop him over dead in his wife's arm. End quote. Now, when Pat was first elected sheriff, he did have Mason continue mingling with the criminal element over there at Fort Sumner in hopes of gathering intel, which is what he was doing leading up to that big raid. As for Pat, he organized a posse over in Roswell, which included Bob Ollinger and Frank Stewart and his Texas boys were also brought in. The idea was to make a big sweep of the Fort Sumner area and arrest Billy and as many of his friends as they could locate. Ideally, this would include counterfeiters and stock thieves. A big win-win for all involved. Late in the evening of November 29th, Garrett, Ollinger, and around 20 others rode out of Roswell and straight to Dan Diedrich's ranch. Unfortunately, none of the men they were looking for were present, but they did flush out a couple of guys who had recently escaped jail over in Las Vegas, one of which was the notorious J.J. Webb. These two prisoners in tow, the posse pushed on to Fort Sumner with similar results. No Billy the Kid. And it's there at Sumner where Garrett received a letter informing him of the recent killing over in White Oaks. He was also told by a little birdie that Charlie Bowdry, Tom Folliard, and Tom Pickett were hiding out nearby at the Yarby Ranch. Seeing as how Pat had a federal warrant for Bowdry, the posse headed out once more. On the way to the Yarbys, they spotted a lone horseman who turned out to be Tom Folliard. Upon spying the posse, the bandit spurred his horse into action and took off riding like the devil firing his Winchester behind him while doing so. Although Garrett and the others attempted to give chase, and even though they were able to put a bullet in Tom's horse, he still got away. Of course, by this point, the element of surprise was gone. By the time Garrett and the posse reached Yarby's ranch, nobody remained but Charlie Bowdry's wife, and she wasn't saying peep. The next stop was Los Portales, sort of an oasis rock formation that the kid would sometimes stop at while trailing stolen livestock. Garrett and his men found a couple of head of stolen cattle, a pile of blankets, and some old musty flour in one of the caves, but no outlaws. From there, they pushed on to the Wilcox Brazil Ranch, another known hangout of Billy and Company, and owners Thomas Wilcox and Manuel Brazil were just two of the locals that were becoming mighty weary of wanted criminals using their property as a hideout. The posse would have lunch there at the ranch, and Wilcox told Pat that Charlie Bowdry was ready to make a deal. In turn, Garrett passed a message to Charlie, asking to meet up the next day just outside of Fort Sumner, adding that Bowdry should come unarmed. Well, he didn't. Charlie showed up with a loaded pistol on his hip like the dangerous man he was, and he and Pat exchanged some not-so-nice words. Finally, they came to an agreement. If Bowdry would stop riding with the kid and basically cut him and the others off, there would be an air quotes effort to get him released on bail, after which he could work to redeem himself. Bowdry somewhat agreed, saying that he would sever his relationship with Billy, but should he or the others stop by his place, he would likely have no other recourse but to feed him a meal and let him rest. Pat left Charlie with a warning. I told him if he did not quit them or surrender, he would be pretty sure to get captured or killed. As we were after the gang, it would sleep on their trail until we took him in, dead or alive. That part about sleeping on the trail wasn't necessarily true. 
Garrett's men had been riding hard for over a week. Every single one of them was in need of a warm bed, and even their horses needed to rest. That being the case, Pat ended up disbanding the posse and sending everyone back to Roswell except for Barney Mason, who accompanied the sheriff to Las Vegas with those two prisoners they captured over at Diedrich's place. On the way there, Pat received word from an advance rider that a posse from Vegas had ridden out to retrieve the prisoners, and that they'd be waiting in the village of Puerto de Luna. Okay, fine. Great news for Pat and Barney. It was nearly 80 miles from Puerto de Luna to Vegas, so this would save Garrett a considerable amount of travel if he could just offload the prisoners and then return back to the task at hand. Problem is, this so-called posse wasn't exactly the most competent bunch of buckaroos who ever set a saddle. They rode out to meet Pat and Barney just a few miles outside of the village, some 20-odd strong and resembling what Garrett would later describe as a, quote, whirlwind of lunatics. They were a haughty bunch, huffing and puffing about what big badasses they were and prancing their ponies around the prisoners who were getting more and more nervous by the second. J.J. Webb, himself a former lawman and acutely aware of the fact that he was about to be lynched, offered Pat $10 if he'd stay with them until they reached Vegas. Garrett agreed, but refused the money. Once in Puerto de Luna, Pat had the prisoners fitted with irons as he swung by Padre Polacco's store for a chat. Polacco, real name Alexander Grzhovsky, was a former priest who had been friendly with the kid. At least he had been until Billy stole several of his horses. I guess Pat had the idea to maybe question the Padre, but was soon interrupted by a pair of local toughs. First up to bat was Juan Mays, who approached Garrett with his hands up, sarcastically mocking the sheriff by saying, Here I am, take me. To Garrett's credit, he dismissed the fool and returned his conversation with the Padre. That's when Marino Leva decided to try his luck, stepping up and letting Pat know that he couldn't take him, to which Garrett replied that he didn't want him. Leva wouldn't let it go, though. Kept on running his mouth until Pat shoved him to the ground and told him to get the hell gone. Marino did indeed leave, but he came back a few minutes later with a pistol in his hand, letting loose a couple of ineffectual shots before Garrett was able to clear leather and put a slug through the would-be gunfighter's shoulder. Next thing you know, here comes what passed for the law there in Puerto de Luna, telling Pat that he needed to hand over his weapons and that he was under arrest, prompting Barney Mason to ask Pat if he wanted him to, quote, cut the son of a bitch in two. Pat urged calm, but refused to either hand over his guns or allow himself to be taken into custody. The next morning, he simply settled the matter with the local justice of the peace before joining the posse on the road to Las Vegas. Now, once they arrived at their destination and the prisoners were turned over to the proper authorities, Garrett met up with Frank Stewart and his Texas gunmen to go over their options. Pat was pretty sure that in his absence, Billy Bonney had moved back to Fort Sumner, so they all decided to head back down that away and see what they could stir up. That being the case, early in the morning of December 18th, before the sun even cracked the horizon, Garrett, Barney Mason, and Frank Stewart, along with ten of his cowhands, all came slinking in to Fort Sumner on the sly. They had just spent around 15 hours in the saddle and were tuckered out, so they got themselves a room and settled down, just figuring on keeping a low profile and hopefully getting some rest as they waited for the kid to show up. Turns out nap time would have to wait, though as they soon got word that Billy was hiding out in a nearby abandoned building. The posse gathered, quiet as a bunch of church mice, as Pat gave the order not to take any chances and to shoot to kill. With that, he raised his leg and hammered the door open with one swift kick of the boot. Fortunately for the innocent man inside, Garrett and the others held their fire long enough to realize that he was not Billy the Kid. Poor bastard was just a mailman from over in Vegas who now needed a fresh pair of underwear. 
With that bit of excitement out of the way, the posse returned to their quarters, and the day passed without incident. Following morning, Pat began working a few of the locals. First up was Juan Gallegos, the teenage stepson of Thomas Wilcox, who let it slip that Billy and his pals were currently hiding out at the Wilcox Brazil ranch, much to the chagrin of Senor's Wilcox in Brazil. Next, Pat found Billy's sympathizer Jose Valdez and forced him to pin a letter stating that Garrett and the posse left Fort Sumner and that the coast was clear. Garrett then wrote a separate note to Wilcox in Brazil before giving both notes to young Gallegos. And Juan did as he was told, delivering both letters, and believe it or not, Billy and the boys took the bait hook, line, and sinker. Now by this point, probably for her own safety, Charlie Bowdry's wife was living inside the old Indian hospital portion of Fort Sumner. Figuring that's where the kidding gang would stop first, Pat placed a guard as he and the others waited patiently inside, along with a few Hispanic residents who Pat suspected would sound alarm. Sure enough, that evening, around 8 p.m., here comes posseman Lawn Chambers passing the word that horsemen were approaching. Men in their positions, the lawmen waited as the kid, Billy Wilson, Tom Pickett, Dave Rudabaugh, Charlie Bowdry, and Tom Folliard approached, with Folliard in the lead. Just when the time was right, Pat called out for him to halt, and Folliard, always game, went for his sidearm. All hell then broke loose as the posse opened up fire and the outlaws wheeled their horses and galloped away to safety. All except for one, at least. Tom Folliard's horse remained, him slumped over the saddle and crying in agony. Garrett would later recall, quote, You never heard a man scream the way that he did. Tom pleaded with the posse, saying that he was killed and to stop shooting, prompting Barney Mason to use that line that Vigo Mortison borrowed in Young Guns 2. Take your medicine, boy. The outlaw was taken inside and laid on a blanket, where he would linger in pain for the next 45 minutes altering between Curse and Pat, asking for Garrett to finish him off, and panicking and begging not to be shot again. Finally, Tom asked for water, which was given to him. He drank, laid back, shuddered, and died. A couple of days later, Manuel Brazil showed up at Sumner and reported that Billy and the others had just left his place, prompting Pat and the boys to saddle up. And Garrett knew exactly where the kid was headed. A little tiny rock house at a place they called Stinking Springs just a few miles away from the Brazil ranch. Now, instead of repeating myself, I will once more refer you to the series on Billy the Kid, Episode 5, KNS, if you're interested in hearing all the details as to what exactly occurred there at Stinkin' Springs. Long story short, Pat and his men surrounded the house, and at daybreak, they shoot and kill Charlie Bowdry, thinking that he was the kid. The remaining outlaws, Billy Bonnie, Dave Rudabaugh, Billy Wilson, and Tom Pickett, eventually come out with their hands up. These prisoners are first transported to Fort Sumner, where they drop off Bowdry's body, and then head up to Puerto de Luna for Christmas dinner before finally arriving in Las Vegas late in the afternoon of December 26th. By the way, this all happened before Pat was officially the sheriff of Lincoln County. Remember, that didn't go into effect until January 1st, 1881. When he arrested the kid, he was still just a deputy, at least on paper. Now, Billy and most of the others would only stay one night there in that Las Vegas jail. The next morning, Pat came to fetch his prisoners and load them onto a train bound for Santa Fe, but he soon ran into a few roadblocks. First of all, Tom Pickett would stay behind no matter what, as Garrett held no federal warrants on the man. Which, okay, fine. Only thing is, the jailers there at Vegas also didn't want to give up Rudabaugh, who had previously killed a guard while escaping. I guess the townsfolk wanted Dirty Dave tried and hung right there so they could watch. I'm sure Garrett sympathized, but he had also promised Rudabaugh that he would see him to Santa Fe without getting lynched, 
much in the same way that he had guaranteed the safety of Dave's old pal, J.J. Webb. So Garrett put it to the Las Vegas sheriff in no uncertain terms. This is my prisoner, I'm responsible for him, and I intend to have him. Reluctantly, they did release Rudabaugh back into Pat's custody. But the lanky lawman wasn't out of the weeds yet. At the train depot, they had to push their way through an angry mob just to get on board. Once inside the passenger car, Pat cautioned the civilians, saying, Any of you people don't want to be in on it, better be out before I lock the car, as we are liable to have one hell of a fight in a few minutes. One witness on the train who stayed behind reported, quote, It seemed as if the fight would begin any minute, and I expected to see the Mexicans fire into the car right away. He's referring there to the mob, which was largely comprised of local Hispanics who had absolutely no love for Mr. Dave Rudabaugh. The witness continued, Nine men with cocked rifles sturdily standing off a mob of hundreds. Those men never flinched an iota. Such bravery, even to recklessness, was new to me. End quote. Some of the vigilantes even rushed the conductor and shoved a gun in his face, telling him that he was a dead man if he tried to pull the train forward. Finally, here comes the Las Vegas sheriff, heavily armed and demanding that Dave Rudabaugh be handed back over. I guess with that mob behind him, he was suddenly brave enough to stand up to Garrett. Still, though, Pat held firm, replying with a resolute, come and take him. Garrett then turned and told his prisoners that if bullets started flying, he'd arm them, a statement that further excited the already lively Billy the Kid, as he replied, All right, Pat, all I want's a six-shooter. There's no danger, though. Those fellers won't fight. And sure enough, Billy called it. After nearly an hour, a brave postal inspector of all people, who had once been a train engineer, offered to slip in and throttle the locomotive out of the mob's reach. And that's just what he did, lurching ahead as the wannabe vigilantes simply watched in open-mouthed astonishment, all the while with Billy Bonnie hanging his head out of the window, waving his hat and hollering adios. That evening, they pulled into Santa Fe, handed the prisoners over to Deputy U.S. Marshal Conklin, and Garrett began the long process of trying to claim that reward that Governor Wallace had placed on Billy's head. Okay, so this is a little strange, and to be perfectly honest, I don't quite understand it. First of all, let me just say that this is around the same time that Wallace had published his book, Ben-Hur, so he wasn't even in the territory. That being the case, Garrett had to deal with the acting governor, a weasel by the name of William Rich, who informed him that he had no authority to make good on said reward. Apparently, this was due to a technicality, specifically the wording of the reward notice. Governor Wallace had issued it back in December of 1880, and it read as follows. I will pay $500 reward to any person or persons who will capture William Bonney, alias the Kid, and deliver him to any sheriff of New Mexico. Satisfactory proofs of identity will be required. Lou Wallace, Governor of New Mexico. So I guess the first issue is that it was written as if Wallace was personally offering the money, as opposed to the territory of New Mexico, which in my opinion is bullshit. The next problem is that Pat was still not technically sheriff. He delivered the kid to that marshal in Santa Fe a whopping three or four days before his official term would begin. And remember, that wanted poster said that Billy had to be turned over to a sheriff, which is also bullshit. Now, the biggest question I have that still has not really been answered to my satisfaction was if Pat ever received this $500. I have reached out to several people who might be able to shed further light on this subject, including some experts in the field. As of this moment, though, it does not appear as if Garrett was awarded that initial bounty. Hey, real quick, I'm recording this after the fact. Just a little bit of an update. I have heard back from more of those experts I just referenced. 
I don't really feel comfortable sharing their names because these were private emails. And it does still seem like there's a big question mark as to whether Pat received the money or not. Either that or I'm too dumb to understand it the way they're explaining it to me, which is always a possibility. Uh, I will say this, at least one of the people I've been talking to, whom I have a lot of respect for, someone who has researched and written extensively about both Pat and Billy, does seem pretty confident that yes, Garrett did receive that initial $500. I don't have any references I can point you to. I have no original sources. I can't say when he received this money. So it is still a little bit iffy, to me at least. And just to be clear, so there's no confusion, Pat Garrett would ultimately be paid a $500 reward after killing Billy the Kid. That absolutely did happen, despite what you may have heard, and we will be discussing that on next week's episode. The confusion here, on my part at least, is whether or not Pat also was given that first $500 bounty that was placed on Billy's head that he should have got after that arrest there at Stinking Springs. All right. Nevertheless, private citizens began pitching in money, and Pat ended up with way more than $500. His pockets full of dough, he then returned to Lincoln and busied himself with the usual mundane tasks of a county sheriff. Doing paperwork, collecting taxes, serving writs, all that fun stuff. He also used some of that money to purchase both a ranch and a hotel, so he was doing okay financially. Billy would eventually be transferred to Mesilla, where he was put on trial and found guilty for the murder of the former Lincoln County Sheriff, William Brady. And on April 21st, 1880, some five months after the arrest at Stinkin' Springs, he and Garrett were once more reunited. Judge Bristle, the same judge who had passed that guilty verdict, ordered that the kid be transported back to Lincoln and placed in Garrett's care until May 13th, at which point he should be hung by the neck until he be dead, dead, dead. This posed a bit of a problem as Garrett now had to figure out how to keep Billy from escaping a town that, according to the sheriff, never had a jail that could, quote, hold a cripple. Finally, Pat decided to house the kid on the second floor of the Lincoln County Courthouse, formerly the Murphy Dolan store, in a room all by himself that also just happened to be directly next to Garrett's office. And while incarcerated, he would be guarded by deputies James W. Bell and Bob Pecos Ollinger. Now let's talk about old Bob Ollinger. Whereas I do think Pat Garrett has been somewhat falsely maligned over the years, it appears that Ollinger deserves all the hate that he still receives. He was the same age as Pat, originally from Indiana, which I think explains quite a bit, and spent time in both Kansas and Indian Territory before migrating down to the Seven Rivers area of New Mexico shortly before the Lincoln County War broke out. Bob was an active participant. And in October of 1880, he was one of the men who Agent Azaria Wild commissioned as a deputy U.S. Marshal. Ollinger spent weeks with Pat hunting down the bandits, and in April of 81, Ollinger was one of the guys who went up to Messiah to fetch the kid. This doesn't mean that Sheriff Garrett was fond of Bob. To quote Pat, Ollinger was a born murderer at heart, and I never slept out with him that I did not watch him. Of course, back then, we had to use for deputies such materials as we could get. Ollinger was a bully and considered by some as the meanest man in New Mexico. Others, in contrast, recognized him as a coward who hated those whom he couldn't bluff. And I don't know about you, but that sounds like a classic case of what I've heard referred to as Little Dick Syndrome. Similar to Little Man Syndrome, but someone suffering from Little Dick Syndrome doesn't have a sense of inadequacy based on their height so much as the size of their you-know-what. Just a little word of the wise for all you fellers out there. 
definitely got to keep an eye on how you're overcompensating. For instance, if someone were to make a movie about, uh, oh, I don't know, a girl who happens to be a Comanche warrior and she fights and defeats a predator, or um, what else would be a crazy thing for somebody to make? Uh, if somebody made a movie about a pink doll and everything in the movie was pink and this somehow uh, really outraged you, you might not want to let people know because you just might be also letting them know that you've got a little wee-wee, right? You following me? Sometimes we tell on ourselves without knowing it. Anyway, you may recall me speaking briefly on the Jones family back in the series on Billy the Kid, whom Billy stayed with for a little while after returning to New Mexico from Arizona. Well, in August 1879, Ollinger gunned down John Jones, the son of high school and Ma'am Jones. And rumor has it, Jones was shot from behind. Not only that, but he was not the first man who Bob Ollinger killed under mysterious circumstances. So yeah, it's only natural that Ollinger would continue his bullying ways there at the courthouse, constantly taunting the kid and threatening him with that double-barreled shotgun. And it's not even just that, man. Ollinger was just cocky, to the point that he even refused to take proper precautions when guarding Billy, causing Sheriff Garrett to reprimand him. Bob responded by laughing and claiming that he could turn the kid loose and just herd him around like a goat, and that there was absolutely no way he could escape. Words that Ollinger wouldn't live long enough to regret. Now, it was the total opposite with Deputy Bell. Everybody seemed to like him, including Billy. And even though Deputy Bell was really good friends with Jimmy Carlisle and thus had a legitimate reason to hate the kid, he didn't let it show. He treated him fairly. Of course, fair or not, that wasn't going to stop what was coming. Bell may have been nice and all, but the kid was a killer and he wasn't going to let such a thing stop him from escaping. And I don't know that I blame him. I guess if it was between me and the hangman's noose, I'd be in a killing mood as well. And you better believe when the kid got his chance on April 28, 1881, he took it. To this day, nobody knows exactly what happened, but while Bob was escorting the other prisoners across the street for dinner, the kid and Belle got into a scuffle. Billy got his hands on a pistole, and that was all she wrote for old Deputy Belle. Bob heard the commotion and came a-running, only to have the kid call out to him from the second-floor window of the courthouse. He looks up, and the last thing he sees is his own double-barreled shotgun in Billy's hands. The kid let loose with both barrels, and the alleged backshooter Bob Ollinger was dead before he hit the ground. And just like that, Billy the Kid was free yet again, with a couple more scalps on his belt. Now, Garrett was not in town when this occurred. Some say that he may have been purchasing the lumber to have Billy's gallows constructed, and others speculate he was doing his normal, more mundane job of collecting taxes. And to Pat's credit, he would mostly take responsibility, saying, quote, I knew the desperate character of the man whom authorities would look for at my hands on the 13th of May, alluding to the kid's execution date, that he was daring and unscrupulous, and that he would sacrifice the lives of a hundred men who stood between him and liberty. And now I realize how inadequate my precautions were. End of quote. Now this taking of ownership wasn't wholly complete, as Garrett also let it be known that the orders he gave Bell and Ollinger were not properly carried out. Not that it mattered much. I mean, Garrett knew they were being slack, especially Bob, and he didn't relieve either man from duty, nor did he let their lack of discipline prevent him from leaving town. The responsibility ultimately fell on him, as it should have. Pat didn't arrive back in Lincoln until the day after the escape, but he quickly organized a volunteer posse to track the kid down, with zero results. Next, he dispatched Barney Mason to see what he could find out. The deputy was able to track Billy all the way to Fort Sumner, 
I don't suppose it took no genius to figure out that's where he was headed. And with a tip from the locals, he soon found Billy in the company of a few Mexican sheep herders. Noticing that the kid was armed to the teeth and not looking all that friendly, Mason did what he had always done and put spurs to his mount and skinned on out. He did then attempt to raise a posse in nearby Fort Sumner, but couldn't find no takers, so he just went on back home. Man, poor old Pat Garrett just could not catch a break when it came to deputies. Now here's where things get interesting. Instead of raising another posse and going back to Fort Sumner, Pat simply bides his time. He stayed close to home, hung out with his wife and kids, and tended to his little ranch. Wasn't long before people started thinking that maybe Garrett didn't have what it took to put an end to the kid. Turns out, this is exactly what Pat wanted. He would later say, If my seeming unconcerned deceived the people and gave the kid confidence in his security, my end was accomplished. I do think it's worth mentioning that Pat didn't really think Billy would stick around Fort Sumner. Tom Folliard was dead, as was Charlie Bowdry. Rudabaugh, Pickett, and Wilson were all rotten behind bars. There was absolutely nothing but air and opportunity between Billy and the Mexican border. Or the Colorado border, for that matter, where his old friends, the Coes, were living. It goes against all logic that the kid would stay in New Mexico. He had yet another $500 bounty placed on his head, and besides, it wasn't like he exactly had a home to call his own. I got a little pushback for once refuting the idea that Billy was too smart to be taken by someone like Pat Garrett, and I think people were misinterpreting what I was saying. I did not mean that the kid was stupid, far from it. Matter of fact, I do believe that Bonnie was of above-average intelligence. He was no dummy. But to say that he was too smart for Garrett to catch him flies in the face of everything that we've just discussed. Events that we know for a fact happened. Pat was able to lure Billy back to Fort Sumner for the ambush that saw Folliard killed. He was then able to capture Billy over Stinking Springs. And now, with everybody in the territory gunning for him, the kid was still hanging around Fort Sumner. Which, let's be honest, that's not exactly the smartest decision in the world. Doesn't mean that the kid was stupid, but even smart people do things that, in hindsight, are foolish. Lots of theories as to why Billy stuck around. Uh, the most plausible, in my opinion, is that he stayed for a girl. We know that he and Paulita Maxwell were romantically involved, and there's rumors that Billy was also having an affair with Charlie Bowdry's widow as well as rumors that he was messing around with Pat Garrett's sister-in-law, Celsa Gutierrez, along with another young lady named Abrana Garcia, whom some think may have given birth to Billy's child. Given just a bit more time, I think it's likely that the kid would have got gone, maybe finished whatever business he had around Fort Sumner, or marry whatever gal he had his eyes on, and then just leave for old Mexico. Hell, supposedly he and Rudabaugh had planned to go to Mexico even before the incident over at Stinking Springs. And I do think, had Billy done so, he likely would have lived much longer. As it were, whether this was truly intended or not, the hesitation on the part of Garrett did give the kid a sense of false security. So did his own intelligence, I'm sure. Billy was able to get out of every single tight spot he had ever been in, whether it was gunfights or arrests or what have you. He always came out on top. So why would he think things would change now? Got to assume that he was supremely self-confident, and seeing as how he was still just 20 years of age, he, like most young men, likely had no awareness to his own mortality. Be that as it may, William H. Bonney was not a god. He was susceptible to both handcuffs and bullets, just like any other man, and Pat Garrett was soon headed that way, packing both. And I think with that, we'll go ahead and wrap this one up. This episode was originally over twice as long, but I thought I'd pace it out a little bit more. 
and not rush through a lot of these events. I didn't want to shove too much information down your throat all at once. Next week, we will discuss in full Pat's final showdown with Billy the Kid. We'll hear from Garrett himself as he answers the accusations of cowardice. We'll talk about whether or not Billy was armed when he was shot down. And you'll hear me rant and rave about why I'm so certain that Garrett did indeed kill Billy the Kid at Fort Sumner in 1881. Now, if you don't want to wait until next Wednesday for the next episode, it is now available at IntoHistory.com. Ad-free. Not sure if you heard last week's announcement, but the Wild West Extravaganza is now part of the Into History Network. That's I-N-T-O-H-I-S-T-O-R-Y. Into History is a brand new subscription channel made by history lovers for history lovers. Or as I like to call it, a history buff's wet dream. Get instant access not only to ad-free episodes of the Wild West Extravaganza, but bonus content, exclusive curated feeds, a weekly newsletter, a private Discord server, a damn book club, and soon-to-be-announced live streaming events. In addition to the Wild West Extravaganza, you'll also have access to other shows like History Daily, American Elections Wicked Game, History That Doesn't Suck, Her Half of History, Cold War Conversations, American Revolution, and a few others that I cannot yet announce. Don't worry, nothing has changed. You will still be able to access the Wild West Extravaganza wherever you currently do. But if you want the ad-free content and all the special perks I just mentioned, and if you want to hear next week's episode early, just head on over to IntoHistory.com and claim 50% off your first three months, now through July 31st. That's IntoHistory.com. All right, till next week, try not to let your little dick syndrome show. Don't kill anybody. And if you're lucky enough to escape from jail, maybe don't immediately go back to the same damn place where you got arrested. Adios. got a little wee wee.